Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Going for Two, the official podcast of the Extra Points newsletter. I am your intrepid host and publisher of said newsletter, Matt Brown. I'm joined here uh, by my colleague and co-host, Brian Fisher. Uh, Brian, I think as we talked about last week, now as an international soccer expert of all of 12 days, um, I've thoroughly enjoyed this uh, this diversion here from from football administrative news into actual football. Right. I assume you're you've been following the Euro closely, too. Absolutely. All in on the Euros. We got Copa America starting, too. So it's it's going to be like wall to wall soccer coverage, especially great for me out in the Pacific time zone because it starts, you know, 6 a.m. And almost like uh, going back and you got to wake up early for game day uh, in, in the fall. This is yeah. waking up for, for soccer of, of, of a different sort. But I, I, I'm loving this, the soccer all day and uh, loving, you know, really the the newsworthiness of, of everything that's going on as well, because it, it, the, the news cycle just does not stop. And uh, we had had a bunch of uh, playoff expansion talk last week. And I think there's going to be even more more news in the world of college athletics to keep us busy as well. Yeah, I, I picked a pretty terrible time to go on vacation. We're you know we're we're changing things up a little bit here scheduling wise. We're recording here on a Sunday. We normally do a little bit later in the week uh, because both Brian and I are both going to be out of town for a couple of days. I'm going to Utah next week, late, late this week, and we'll be gone for most of next week. There'll be some guests publishing on Extra Points. Brian will have a guest here in replace of me, um, why I am looking at a bunch of red rocks. And of course, while I'm gone, <laughs> that's probably when we're going to have even more college football playoff expansion news. We're probably going to have Alston. Uh, Nick Saban's probably going to retire while I'm somewhere in a national park in the middle of central Utah, because that's just how these things work, because the college football gods don't want us to have lives. But absolutely wasn't it? I think it was Labor Day or uh, Memorial Day when uh, Jim Trestle resigned. Like it, yeah. it seems like there's always a holiday re- resignation or something. So I'm I'm sure, you know, in the middle of June, we'll we'll have something along those lines as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that it's not my job to care about, like the in- initial ebbs and flows of individual recruiting, because some some kid recruits on Christmas every year and that kid should automatically be docked an entire star. If, if you just, just for like, listen, terrible field awareness, this is, this is, we're all, we're all trying to go watch the Hawaii bowl and like be competent relatives right now. And now we have to write about some three-star linebacker committing. And, um, thankfully that's not my life. Um, what, what, it, what we are trying to do right now, because rather than like try to anticipate what we anticipate being some big topics coming when Brian and I might be on airplanes, wanted to take a minute here and take a couple of your questions. We solicited uh, some of these on Twitter. We solicited some of these within the Discord channel here from Extra Points. More on that here in a little bit to get an idea for some of the things that you are curious about. So I figured we can can kind of dig into that here a little bit, and then we can bring in some serious professional experts on some of the more structural things that are going to be happening later this summer. Um, the first question that came in to me uh, came in here via Twitter. Uh, a user asked why a D1 conference would decide to pick a company like Flow Sports over an ESPN or like a, a massive entity for their conference media rights. Um, we saw, I think just a couple of days ago, the Big Sky announced that they were going to go with, with ESPN and ESPN Plus. But there are a couple other leagues. The Colonial Athletic uses Flow Sports. Lots of Olympic sports use Flow Sports. The WAC might end up using Flow Sports. Uh, I have, I, you know, I've talked to a couple of athletic directors about this. Brian, is there something that you've heard that would, would, would kind of walk through the reasoning of why somebody might take a call from not ESPN for this sort of thing? Well, the, the number one reason is obviously money. That's that's what everybody focuses on. It you know sometimes these these are payment you know structured uh, to where it's everything is up front and and you get a month a yearly rights fee uh, you know for a certain number of games or whatnot. A lot of the 
combination of between Flow Sports and ESPN it also has to do with, I think, sub-licensing, uh, whether it's football games, whether it's uh, men's basketball or whatnot, in terms of how flexible you can be with those. You know, I, I look at uh, you know the CAA and their ability to sub-license uh, some of their basketball games back to CBS Sportsnet to where they get more of a national reach on, on that front well, was a bit of a part of their deal and, and with, with Flow Sports as well when they signed that, uh, I believe, 2019 uh, when, they, when they go back to that one. But a lot of that has to do with not only that, that rights fee, the ability to sub-license, and also who produces those games. And a lot of times it's on the schools to kind of shoulder that cost in terms of those those game productions versus, you know, if you sign up with, with an entity like ESPN Plus, sometimes that is actually, you know, uh, fallen under the ESPN umbrella to where they're actually producing some of those football games and some of those broadcasts for you. So uh, it, it, it varies, but I think it it's, uh, really kind of comes down to it. what's that upfront you know, rights payment, and then also what's what's kind of the production cost that each conference and, and each school has to kind of shoulder as well as part of these deals. The production cost is the thing that's come up in every conversation that I've had, right? When we're talking about a Big Ten or an SEC, we're looking at tens, uh, now this decade, well over $50 million in revenue from a television deal for a conference. When we start looking at the single bid basketball leagues, if there's a rights fee at all, we are talking five figures, uh, per per individual school, uh, which is not an enormous amount of money. A school could theoretically make more money selling licensed beer um, or through uh, other like, you know, their, their, their Learfield multimedia deal way, way more than they might make from television. Um, and the media rights fee is not necessarily the, the, the most important figure. Right. You could sign a deal that pays you one hundred thousand dollars in rights fees. But if suddenly you have to increase your production costs by one hundred fifty thousand so you can stream a bunch of volleyball games up to this production standard when before it was just a bunch of undergrads doing it, you are losing money. So the, the rights fee, you know, makes that conversation more complicated. It obviously is about money. The other thing that has been referred to for me is that you might look at a, if you're a really small league, you might look to somebody that's not ESPN because if you are their fourth biggest client, you might expect a level of flexibility or a level of customer service that you might not get working for the single largest sports entity where you are client number 400. It's the same reason why a, a university could theoretically decide to call up New Balance instead of Nike. Um, Nike might might be able to pay you a little bit more money, but if you're one of the only college clients, you might be able to have a different relationship. This is how Under Armour was able to be successful in the collegiate space in the beginning because they could they could say like, listen, we're a much smaller company. We will make the alternate uniforms for you, Temple and South Florida, and treat you like your Oregon. Um, I think that similar thought process can extend to a a rights partner potentially. Right. Yeah, and I mean, some of these schools have, have already built out broadcast facilities. They they already have you know play by play and color folks from usually from the radio broadcast. Broadcast they can simulcast uh, across uh, those, and so it, it kind of depends on some of how, how much it really does cost for these productions, and, and that uh, is a huge factor for these schools. Some of them are, are way ahead of the game; others are, are going to need help. We've already seen uh, across the ACC, in particular, as the ACC network got launched, a lot of those ACC schools spent millions of dollars on broadcast level studios to produce not only the, the games themselves for ACC Network Extra and, and some of the other digital products that they have out there, but also some of the shoulder programming. And so some of the schools are a little bit ahead of the curve on, on that front and already have those costs kind of uh, absorbed in, in past year's physical budgets. Others do not and, and need a little bit of help on that front. So it all plays in, in, into a role in terms of those negotiations. And frankly, it's why you see uh, a lot of these leagues 
contract with consultants or, or other third parties to kind of negotiate it. Cause you got to look at all those costs over in a multi-year period to where you do know where you can not only break even, but hopefully make some money down the road as well. The, the, what you describe with the, a, with the AAC, I know for a fact is also something that was a big issue for many schools within the American where, you know, the sticker price might say you're making about $7 million a year, but I, I know ECU had to spend well into seven figures to build up that infrastructure that they didn't need to before. So like their net gain is much smaller than that. I know Tulsa had to do the same thing, you know, over a long enough period of time, that's fine, but it's, you know, what you get and what's in the press release might be two different figures. And you're right. It's a complicated industry. Your training as a chemist, which made you eventually become a university president, might not prepare you for those conversations. Um, speaking of inter- of potentially complicated negotiations, this was a really interesting question that came in via our Discord channel. One of our users, one of the extra points readers asked, what school or schools do you think have the potential to make the biggest name image likeness splashes in July? So not over a year, not over six months, but right from go. Who, who are some of the who are some of the schools that you think might be able to grab headlines early? So, uh, you know, just the process of elimination, I think we could assume that it has to be a school that's in a state that we know is going to be able to you know activate that marketplace come July 1st. That's not na- a nationwide thing. That is predominantly, although not exclusively, in the South. We have already heard of a couple of, of athletes at Georgia where uh, I think a, a T-shirt company has said that like, we want to do this. We'll have it go into effect July 1st. That's not just football players. There's going to be a couple of other athletes. I think that would be a reasonable guess. Uh, one of the Mississippi schools, I think, could be a good guess. I suspect that whatever we say in July might be different from what it is six months from now. Um, I can just say from my limited vantage, uh, full disclosure, as extra points, I am trying to sponsor some athletes. I'm trying to use, I, I, I'm a member of a couple of different marketplaces. I've talked to some agents already. Um, and, you know, the feedback that I've gotten from the consumer, the, the brand side now is it's going to take a little bit for that marketplace to mature. A lot of athletes have no idea where to start. Not everything's going to begin July 1. So, I, I mean, my first thought is think, you know, SEC-ish adjacent large schools. And then we might, you're going to see some headlines of like, of softball player at Southern Miss getting five grand like two months later. What do you think, Brad? I, I completely agree. And and I think it's also important to keep in mind, this is an Olympic year. So I think some of those Olympic athletes might be able to coast uh, off what happens in Tokyo. And so I think that could also be another opportunity for some of the the non-football men's basketball type of players to, to get some interesting deals uh, coming out of the, the Tokyo Olympics in particular. And so I, I would look there uh, maybe in the, the intermediate term, but short term, you, you mentioned the SEC uh, was, was already reading about Georgia and, and some of their student athletes uh, almost uh, ready to go in terms of having a deal on July 1st uh, with an apparel company uh, based in Athens, um, you're going to kind of see some of those local deals, whether car dealership, uh, you know, even, you know, for, for coupons or whatnot. And, and Hey, post a, a buy one, get one free on, on your, your Twitter or Instagram account, those sort of small deals, I would imagine that's going to kind of crop up initially. And it is going to be with, you know, football, men's basketball players, whoever is really kind of popular with, with that school. Uh, certainly the Florida schools throw them as in there as well. Um, you know, they've, they've had a long time to think about this and, I I would imagine there, there's going to be a couple of athletes in the state of Florida uh, at those schools that uh, are are ready to go on July 1st. 
But like you said, the marketplace itself, it, it's going to take some time to sort out. You know, I, I think there's going to be some initial confusion. I mean, these, these, these athletes have not been able to hire marketing agents or really kind of dive into Maybe they've done some trial runs on some of the, the software that the schools have provided for them, but they haven't been able to kind of flip that switch and say, I want this for $3,000 and this is going to be uh, what I'm going to pay in taxes and, and figure all that out. It's going to take a few weeks, I think, for, for things to really get going, but there will, there will be a deal here or there. And, and I would imagine they are going to be focused on some of those SEC football players and then kind of coming out of that as well. Uh, maybe some of the Olympic athletes uh, that are either traveling to Tokyo and are still in school and still have eligibility or, or maybe are thinking about, uh, you know, kind of coming out of uh, the Tokyo Olympics and, and, and having a tie in to some of those uh, major sporting events that we're going to see in not only in, uh, in July, but uh, certainly in August. That's it's certainly a possibility. I mean, we have to remember that depending on state law, in a lot of places, schools aren't even really allowed to help an athlete set up. Like a school can't say like, this is our approved marketplace. Here's how you set up an account and here's how you go to open doors and here's how you go to market watch and these other things. Um, so yeah, if, if your school hasn't announced that they've so that your athletes have $10,000 worth of rights uh, come July 6th, I, I don't think that you're going to be uh, lapped in recruiting. It, it's going to take a minute. Well, and, and, and keep in mind, too, because it's not like you can go to your coaches because a lot of the coaches right now, whether they're your position coach, your assistants, your head coaches, a lot of them are busy about recruiting right now, uh, given the amount of activity that's happening on campus in the month of June in terms of uh, camps, in terms of workouts, in terms of everything that's going on surrounding recruiting, because now that has opened up. So it, it, it's just yeah. difficult for some of the current student athletes to really kind of get a complete handle on what's going to happen when that calendar flips over to July 1st. Yeah, this this is a good point. This is the recruiting open period to end all recruiting open periods, given how closed that marketplace has been for the last several months. Um, speaking of a closed marketplace opening up, another Discord user asks us, what would it mean for a conference to actually cash in on gambling-related revenue? So uh, the best, as far as I know, there's only one school that has anything adjacent to this, and that's the University of Colorado that signed an agreement with a sports book. As I understand it, they advertise the sports book everywhere. They're not saying come gamble specifically on Colorado's like Buffalo Athletics, but it's you know here's they're, they're, the points the points better whatever the entity is is advertising everywhere there. If the Pac-12 or somebody else theoretically decided we want to make this a pillar of our sponsorship uh, strategy. What does that look like? Is it just a crap ton of like banners everywhere or is it something a, a little bit more specific? Yeah, I, I think a lot of it has is, is going to be, you know, related to, you know, the the advertising aspect of things and just, you know, having, you know, maybe it's a 30 spot. I mean, you go back to when when it seemed like DraftKings and some of the other daily fantasy sites were advertising everywhere. You know, I, some of that kind of seeped in a little bit, uh, you know, to the Pac-12 network or, you know, the, the Longcore network or the ACC network, wherever it might be, some of those regional networks. Um, you know, I, I think that is going to increase significantly um, in terms of the advertisement uh, money just kind of flowing in. Uh, that, that would be my guess initially. But, you know, like you said, I, I could imagine there's there's going to be some of those tie ins um, from a marketing standpoint that we saw with Colorado uh, that, that are going to be more widespread now because there are still so many rules related to kind of that separation of church and state with the NCA and, and gambling itself. It, it's just going to be difficult for these schools to generate just a, a massive amount of money by hooking up with MGM or, uh, you know, William Hill or some of these true sports books. Um, and, and keep in mind that the state 
state laws vary. I mean, I think in Illinois, you, you can't even bet on uh, Illinois uh, University sporting events inside the state. So I think there's other keys uh, related to some of those sports sports laws uh, that are even on the books that would prevent some of these schools from really cashing in. I think that, that that's the, the biggest issue, I think. I, I, there are probably not a ton of schools that I, or even leagues that are going to completely shun away from this just because of optics. I feel like that horse has left the barn at this point. It's going to be about what is allowed in that regulatory environment. That's going to be state by state. And right now, particularly here in big 10 country, I think that the juice isn't really worth the squeeze. I mean, I don't even allow gambling entities to advertise on extra points. Only, only some of that's ideological. A lot of that is just regulatory, but that, that could change just like it's changed with, with other industries that we previously thought were taboo. And I would say if if it's truly cashing in, I think the biggest opportunity is probably naming rights um, for stadiums, for arenas, um, that sort of thing could could generate quite a bit of revenue uh, to where you are playing. I mean, uh, I think UConn plays several games at the Mohegan Sun Arena uh, yeah. there, there in Connecticut. So I, I think that kind of opportunity where you do have uh, the, the naming rights aspect of things, which generally already produces millions of dollars when you're adding other, uh, you know, interested companies. Um, now, I don't think they're going to put necessarily put a sports book in there like you've seen at uh, I think Capital One Arena in, in Washington D.C. has a actual sports book built into uh, the arena itself. You're not going to see that at the college level, but um, in terms of maybe sponsoring a, a basketball arena, that could maybe be the next way to where schools really do uh, cash in and, and generate some significant revenue um, from some of these gambling companies. The, the last revenue. Related, last explicitly revenue-related question we got from from Twitter. Uh, our user asked us, "What's the best sport for a school to add to break even revenue-wise?" I'm making air quotes here as I say "break even" because uh, I, I kind of question whether that's really even like an appropriate term to use this sort of thing here. But but if we're just going to look at a PL, I think a lot of this is going to depend on where you are. But if you are looking to just ma- to maximize tuition revenue um, with the at the lowest cost possible. So this is assuming that you are a school that is under-enrolled and believe that you could fill out a roster if you offered a sport. I think track and field, cross country, or anything related to running is probably your best move because you can fill out a roster of potentially 25 people. You don't have to, to or, or more, you know, depending on how big you want to get the roster to go, you don't have to fully fund it to necessarily be competitive and the overhead costs are very low. If you're a school that has access to a swimming pool and then you don't have to build one, you can make more money from swimming because then not only can you also do the same thing, you don't have to fully fund it. You can fill out a, a big roster and get intuition money. You can also rent out the pool. I mean, this is this was part of what made the, the Iowa decision to drop swimming so curious because there's very few Olympic-sized swimming pools in the whole state. Like that is a revenue-producing asset um, if you dedicate a little bit of time to try and sell it, which is something you don't necessarily have with track and cross country. Women's lacrosse, I think, is another example that some other smaller schools are looking at. None of these are sports that are going to make any money from ticketing. You're not going to really get any sponsorship, and it's going to be, it's going to be difficult either to attract donors. The, I, I will look at this as just purely a tuition play. If you are a school that is not under-enrolled and you are looking at what is a sport that I can add for not a ton of money that I think could potentially rev- generate actual revenue like from ticketing or from sponsorships, I, I think softball is probably the move when you when you consider the startup costs, especially if you already have some of those facilities uh, in place. It's things like hockey and, and even wrestling are, 
are can be pretty expensive if you don't have a donor. Does this kind of jive with what you're thinking here, Brian? Yeah, I would definitely say softball, even even baseball. If you haven't even started a program yet, um, you know those those two came to mind instantly. Lacrosse, you mentioned that one. That that's another one where, uh, for, you know, frankly, you probably don't have that many uh, upfront costs in terms of you know you just basically need a field. Um, you know, you, you're not building some massive weight room or uh, you know anything like that. And so that that's a good way to add bodies. Um, I, I think even uh, looking around at, at some of the other programs uh, that, that are out there, tennis would be a good one just because you are able to recruit international athletes quite a bit to tennis, which they're obviously going to be paying a higher rate if they're not on full scholarship. So that's another way, uh, I think, for a lot of these schools, because um, if you have those that ten- tennis court infrastructure already in place, uh, which a lot of schools do or, or, or have them nearby, um, you know, that, that could be a good way to not only get some international athletes paying that, that full freight in terms of tuition costs, but um, in terms of the coaching and, and all that, you really don't need a whole lot uh, to, to be comp- super competitive in that sport either. That is true. Um, I'm actually working on a story about this for extra points. The, the, the hang up with tennis, like, although if you are trying to boost international enrollment through athletics, that's the move. Um, recruiting internationally can be expensive. You're, you're probably going to have to fly to Europe at some point. The other long-term risk there is if your roster is 80% international students, which is not at all uncommon for men's tennis programs, it is, uh, it is difficult to get those athletes to come back and donate to the program versus somebody who is local. That may not be the case for some other sports, but the startup costs, you're right. You don't, you don't need $10 million to start a tennis program. Well, and, and I think name image like this is going to help a sport like tennis in particular uh, a huge amount. And so I think that's another way. And, and you mentioned recruiting costs like that as well. It, with the era of Zoom and, and the way these coaches have been recruiting over Zoom uh, these last couple of months and, and years, uh, I, I think the, the ability to go out and travel internationally, yeah, you, you, you want to do it if it's a truly high profile person. But for the most part, you know, you, you can give these campus tours virtually. Um, you, you don't have to go to um, you know Eastern Europe in, in order to recruit a, an athlete anymore. You don't have to fly over there. You don't have to spend uh, six or seven thousand dollars in airfare and hotel and all that. Um, you, know, you, you can do it all virtually, uh, you know, over Zoom like like they've been doing uh, for, for most of the past couple of months during the pandemic. And so I, I think that is going to open up a few more avenues. I, I still think it's it's an app untapped potential to where you really can recruit better internationally. And I think we're going to see that out of some of these programs. You know, it, it's it might might be worth it. You know, if you want to go over to Australia and, and get a punter, you know, certainly football can make that investment but for some of the other sports. I, I think you're, you're able to recruit virtually well enough to where it, it could make some sense to, to, uh, to really add a, and, and beef up that international enrollment uh, in a sport like tennis or uh, certainly like you mentioned, lacrosse, some of the other non-revenue sports out there. Yeah. The um, speaking of adding revenue, I want to talk about a couple of our sponsors real quick before we get into the, 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 the Lesky's questions, because some of them are, are related, right? So much of what we talk about here in this podcast, in this newsletter, college athletics generally boils down to how do I get more money? <laughs> Everything is more expensive, especially over the last couple of months when even consumer goods or construction has become more expensive. So whether uh, if you work anywhere near an athletic department or if you study the finances of athletic departments, you're probably going to want to understand how to generate more money, how to get more people to give you money right now. And that's why I want to talk about one of our sponsors here from uh, Dr. Dan Freeman, who wrote a book called The Athletic Giving Handbook. Uh, the handbook focuses on uh, lower tier Division One, Division Two, II, Division Three institutions, schools that do not have a small army 
like your Michigan or Ohio states to generate revenue. They all got to figure out how to do more with less money. And this book is designed with very easy step-by-step instructions to help that department evaluate and improve their fundraising while still being flexible and adaptable uh, depending on the strategies that work best for you and your institution. The book talks about uh, giving materials, how to identify potential donors, how to cultivate major giving pipelines, what are some of the stewardship best practices, particularly in a post-COVID environment, and more. It's very useful if you work in this industry, and I think it could also potentially be useful if you work in a nonprofit world or anywhere else uh, related to education. I've got a link here to the book in the show notes here on, uh, on Extra Points, but you can also reach out to the author at Your Athletic Giving Handbook, all one word, at gmail.com. If you pick up the book, um, you can reach out to him and he'll give you a free consulting session so you can understand how to implement what he's talking about with your department or organization. This is a podcast is also sponsored by Extra Points. That's the newsletter that publishes four days a week and digs deep into all these other issues that shape college sports. We talk about name, image, and likeness a lot because that's one of the defining issues that's shaping college athletics in a way that um, hasn't been done in, in decades. And if you want to really understand what's happening at a state-by-state level, a sport-by-sport level, large state flagships, smaller regional publics, HBCUs, Division three schools, you know, if you want to get into how this impacts them, you're going to read about it in Extra Points. If you want to understand small college conference realignment, which we're going to talk about here a little bit later, you're going to find out about on extra points because we're breaking that kind of news all the time. If you want to talk to hear what, what academics and business leaders and commissioners have to say about the issues that are shaping sports and, and uh, athlete rights advocates, politicians, you're going to find all of that with extra points. You can subscribe for free, get two of those uh, newsletters delivered to your uh, inbox every single week, but you can get the full subscriber experience and get four. And then also have access to a discord where you can ask questions that appear on the podcast like this one uh, or, or have me hang out in there and build relationships with other extra point readers and support this podcast, support the newsletter, support our business. You can subscribe at extrapointsmb.com. Use promo code podcast to get 20% off your subscription. Sticker price is eight bucks a month or 75 bucks a year. You can use podcast to get 20% off. And if you have a university email address, Check out the sales tab and you can get up to 50% off depending on your school. That's extrapointsmb.com for the Extra Points newsletter. Brian, we had a couple other questions here that I think um, are all somewhat related given, you know, the part of the part of the focus here of, of the Extra Points newsletter. Uh, one of them here from Twitter is what advice would you give to an FCS institution that wants to become an FBS institution, but doesn't have a ready-made conference invitation right now. If you think, hey, in a decade, I'd love to be in the Sun Belt, or I'd love to be competing for a, a shot to go to the Camellia Bowl, but I don't have that invite right now, what, what would you tell them? I have an idea. What, what, what advice would you give? Uh, win, number one. Uh, win a lot. Number two. And then number three, I think get the facilities question out of the way, you know, make sure you're, you're, you're ready to go on that front and not just having you know, the brand sparkling new, uh, you know, 30,000 seat stadium, you know, you got to have the, the weight room and, and all the other facilities that you need to compete at the FBS level, you know, in place and ready to go. Now, I think it, the, the bar for making that jump from FCS to FBS, uh, especially post pandemic has, has been lowered a little bit to where it's not, not as big of a deal, but I, I think really, um, 
making sure that, uh, you know, you're, you're a winning program to start with, and, and then you can carry that culture over to the FBS level is, is going to be key. Winning definitely helps. Uh, it has made the transition for Appalachian State and Georgia Southern, I think, much easier because then not only did they have a winning tradition, they had a dedicated fan base and they weren't an expansion team in the true sense of the word. It's not necessarily required, though, right? Charlotte didn't really have a, a, a deep FCS tradition. UMass had, had, you know, made, I think, won an FCS title or was playing a championship game. But the decade before jumping up wasn't really a, a national power. Georgia State didn't really have a big FCS tradition before moving up. So it is possible. But with everything, if you're good, it's going to make you a lot more attractive. The, the biggest thing I would give you beyond just the facilities, facilities goal, is you got to get your donors ready because moving from FCS to FBS, just like moving from division two to division one, isn't just a football reclassification. It's really an institutional wide reclassification. It's going to completely change your athletic department and you need to be prepared to make big additional spends, not just in football like stadium, but in coaching and in academic advising and in strength training and in nutrition and creative services. And you're looking at dozens and dozens of new hires. And you're probably not going to get that money from ticket sales because when you jump to FBS, you're probably going to suck. And you're probably not going to get it from state appropriations because you're probably not a state flagship that that's looking at moving up right now. So that's something you need to communicate to your donors and your local business community and say, like, if we want to be in a position we're doing this in a decade, we have to start being able to pay for that stuff now. And you need to make sure that you're also sponsoring the Olympic sports that are necessary to get conference, uh, a conference invitation into one of these other big leagues. Like this, this was something that came up when I was talking with, um, folks over at Dixie, like their, their biggest transition, even though they have, you're, you're in a good market. Um, you're in a city that's growing. You, you now have, a, you have an F FCS league membership. It's just like, we can't possibly have enough money because of, of all the enormous logistical changes here. And the more that you prepare ahead of time, the more flexibility that you're going to have and more attractive that you're going to have. I, I really do think if you're looking from FCS to FBS, it is better to be an average to slightly above average wealthier program, than it is to be a very successful program whose athletic budget is $12 million a year. Um, it's going to be easier to scale with you have money than the success. If you're, if you're doing it on a shoestring. And I think keeping perspective in mind is so key in that move too. nobody's going to, you know, being the Appalachian state to where you just seamlessly transition from FCS into the Sun Belt and, and you start winning right away. That, that is a rare case. Uh, you, you mentioned Charlotte, UMass, some of the others that we've seen come up, even coastal Carolina, as, as great as this last season was to start off with, they kind of had, they, they took their lumps, you know, initially during that transition period. And so I, I think it, it's important to kind of keep everybody understanding that this is a long-term move. So you're, you're going to lose, you know, lose initially. Um, you're going to have those growing pains, uh, not just on the field, but off the field, like you mentioned with uh, getting your donor base ready, um, you know, getting the town ready, you know, being prepared for some of the, the influx uh, of what it means to be an FBS program is is key. And so I think that is that is uh, one thing to keep in mind. And, uh, you know, we're, we're going to see it. I, I think we're going to see it in, in the near term future where a lot more programs, even though we already have 130 FBS programs, I'm guessing it's probably going to grow a little bit uh, over the, these next couple of years, uh, especially as that talk about playoff expansion uh, really starts to kind of drive that bus to where the, the, the money can filter down to other levels. That I, this is a key part of the newsletter that I'm going to write this evening that you may have already seen because it will have published on Monday. Um, 
how the college football playoff money is potentially distributed to the G5 is the single biggest factor that will determine whether we have two new FBS institutions over the next decade or like 13. Um, because if if, if, if you know a, an FBS a son can get a similar distribution to Conference USA schools that right now are like look we've got fifteen thousand students we're a pretty good SCS program suddenly that becomes a much more attainable goal than, than it would it would have been otherwise so that is unquestionably something to watch and something to check out in the newsletter that I'm going to write uh, or have written <laughs> I, I think pretty soon um, on that note a very popular question that I get. Almost every time that I ask folks for questions is an update on what's happening with the WAC. I had three different people ask me this. Here's what I can tell you that I know right now. Brian, if you've heard something different, by all means, uh, you know, chime in and tell me I'm an idiot. What I've heard is that it is the odds of a current big sky institution departing are very, very small. Uh, Northern Arizona just like very recently got a new president, their athletic director, is a like ride or die advocate of the big sky. They've been in that league for a long time. I can look at a map just like everybody else. I understand the argument. I have not been told by anybody that there's a reason to think that that's their potential candidate. Same thing with Weber, same thing with Northern Colorado. Uh, even though they don't have a whole lot of money, their president is very entrenched with leadership and other presidents within that league. If you are looking at potential other candidates right now, the number one would be Incarnate Word which I know received actual like site visits from WAC officials. Um, that's kind of uh, a little bit of a surprise because part of the reason the other Texas schools left the Southland to begin with was to get away from Incarnate Word and Houston Baptist. But you need a, you need a, another Texas institution. Um, one of them is a little bit farther along facilities-wise and market-wise than the other. Um, I don't know if that's actually going to happen because I know that there are some presidents who uh, are still not on board with that. Reading between the lines, I suspect, not I know, I suspect part of the reason Incarnate Word was getting a little bit more attention was because some other candidates or individuals that schools that the WAC thought they might be able to get, they weren't getting or were kind of dragging their feet a little bit. Once you get beyond Incarnate Word, you're looking at some Division II schools. Um, I have not heard uh, anybody uh, outside. Of, I haven't heard anybody else from the Southland being targeted. You know, Augustana had some conversations. I don't really think that's especially likely right now. The, the reason that you want to expand is to give another school that uh, is either in Texas or reasonably close to Texas airline-wise a chance to um, – minimize travel for those other institutions because nobody loves flying all the way to Seattle for non-Olympic sports and they don't want to go all the way across the footprint for FCS football. Don't be surprised if nothing happens for another three months. I appreciate you asking. I'm going to keep asking too. It's similar to what I heard last month. Does that kind of pass the smell test for you, Brian? It does. And incarnate word makes a lot of sense, you know, certainly from just a, a travel perspective and, and where they are as, as a program. But I think you also got to keep in mind is, is what is what is the time frame that they want to expand uh, in terms of the whack? And, and how does that, you know, kind of like we've just mentioned in terms of the playoff talk, if the league wants to make that jump to FBS as a whole, um, you know, w what are the different timetables for these schools in terms of, of doing that? And so uh, I, I think there's a lot of things to juggle. And, and, and let's face it it's really kind of early on in the process of the whack they've they've made this big splash with the expansion already and, and i they're, they're obviously still not done but uh there's there's a lot of steps that need to be taken i, I think around the league I, it's probably worth reiterating that 
COVID has decreased the operational capacity of almost every league, but especially smaller leagues. They have not been able to travel or meet in person or have meetings at the same like pace that they would have otherwise, especially because a lot of these presidents are pretty old. <laughs> they're they're at high risk categories. They're not. They, I know for a fact that some of the IUW or Incarnate Word meetings were delayed a little bit. Uh, because of because of COVID, so um, I understand that the people who are deeply invested in this process uh, are are nervous. Be cool. Everyone's going to get what what they need eventually. Would be would be my thought here. Um, on that note, another interesting Twitter question was: Okay, so we saw the big the twelve team playoff proposal. Um, um, one of the notable parts of, of of this playoff is this idea that you have to win the conference to get a buy. And it, it would seem that it would disadvantage structurally independence. Notre Dame's probably going to still be able to find their way into an at-large bid. But uh, somebody asked me, "Does a 12-team play? What does a 12-team playoff mean for the non-Notre Dame independents? Does this provide an additional incentive for them to join a conference to have uh, perhaps additional playoff access than they might before?" So this is this is would be my answer here. Um, I don't mean to be rude or impolite, but I. I don't. I have no idea what we would be. What we even consider playoff access if you're New Mexico State. Um, it doesn't matter <laughs> what the rules are. You don't have playoff access because you can't win five football games a year on on your schedule. Uh, if you could be in a league, if you're New Mexico State or UConn or UMass, you would be in a league. You're not independent right now because you want to be national barnstormers. You're independent because you're not very good and you don't have an obvious uh, you know, geographic tie of the league that's interested in you. Liberty would like to be in a league. They're not independent on purpose. They're independent because nobody really wants them. And so playoff access there, I, I think, is, is really academic. None of these teams right now are really angling for anything more than a curable bid on a regular basis. And we can revisit playoff like access or revenue sharing when they can, when they are a perennial, like top 30 team. And I know Liberty's like that. They did, they did very well last year and they are projected to be a very good team this year. You know, last year, I'm not really considering any of that data particularly useful because of COVID. And, you know, we'll, we'll kind of see how that program matures. The, 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 the one possible exception, I mean, the army is honestly in this boat too. The one exception, I guess, is BYU. But even then, BYU's made the top 25, finished in the top 25 once in the last decade. And that was during the COVID year when they had better players than everybody on their schedule but one team. We don't have any data to suggest that they're capable of being a top 30 team facing that kind of schedule. So if what that starts happening, then sure, we can, you know, maybe the school should revisit things a little bit. But then it comes down to a philosophical question that I don't think I can answer because I'm not a fan, right? Would you rather play mostly irrelevant, um, lower profile teams during the regular season with the hope that you could then make the playoffs once or twice a decade and get stomped by Texas A&M in the first round? which I think is kind of the trajectory of what a BYU would look like in the Mountain West, where they're going to have better players than most of their opponents. Or do you want to play four or five potentially meaningful games against big-name teams in the regular season, knowing that your postseason game is going to be the Miami Beach Bowl? And I understand the arguments for both, but like that's a philosophical question. Um, neither of those, I think, are especially relevant for playoff access. Am I, am I crazy? Well, I, I think even more than the actual access part is what is the access to the money that these independents are going to get? That, that to me, is the key question going forward is how much are BYU and Army and some of the Liberty, some of the others that you mentioned, how, how much money are, are they going to be getting as part of this expanded playoff? You know, whether they make the field of 12 or whether they don't. 
you know, what is that yearly amount that they're going to be getting? That to me is, is a big, big question going forward for them because if it's a significant increase that, that helps tremendously in terms of your recruiting budget, your facilities, whatnot, as far as the actual access and, and kind of what you're speaking to, I don't think it matters all that much. You're still basically going to have to go undefeated. You're probably going to have to beat a power five opponent, if not two, to really get up into that top 12 and maybe it, it allows for a little bit of leeway to where BYU could go 11 and one, but look very impressive doing it. And then, and then you make the, the 12 team tournament. But at, at the end of the day, I, I don't think it changes a whole lot for the, the non Notre Dame independents out there. I, I don't think it's, it's a huge deal. You know, yes, if you had that one great year, you know, maybe you get invited to the big dance, but at the same time, that's not most years. And whether it's army, whether it's BYU, whether it's all these others getting scheduling hard enough, actually winning those games and looking impressive enough is going to be a tall task. So that to, that to me shifts the question to what am I going to get no matter what? And, and that's going to be the money. And how much was that a percentage? How many millions of dollars? Is it, is it just a, a six figure check from the CFP that we've seen um, the, the, the organization already cut to some of the independents and, and whatnot out there? That, that to me is the bigger question versus kind of the access uh, question. And even that might be academic, because if we look at this in a couple of years and, hey, it turns out that Connecticut would make twice as much money from the college football playoff as a member of the MAC than they would as an independent. Can they can they join the MAC? Would the MAC take them? Would, would, would that be enough to change that calculus? Probably not. Uh, you know, for, for UMass, the same thing. Like we, we have a couple of these league, these teams that would would be in one of these leagues if an invitation existed and whether the playoff if the playoff math somehow makes that invitation more attractive well like that doesn't change anything for me uh, it would be more interesting i guess to think about this for the the teams that are not currently independent but could potentially become independent which was a talking point i think in last off season before covid kind of you know uh, cooled things off a little bit where administrators at umass and connecticut were saying you know other g5 people have talked to us about this and i don't think it's crazy for some other schools that might be more of the interesting question than what does it mean for schools that are already independent because if you're independent and you're not Notre Dame, I think you kind of have to have already made peace with what you are, unless you're going to triple your budget somehow, you know? Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, I don't think it drives any expansion of leagues. I don't think it's just this massive impetus for a UConn or something to join a conference, because I don't think the equation really changes. Finish in the top 12, you're going to be in the tournament. And I think that more than anything is just going to be the driver of things. And if anything, depending on what kind of terms they get, maybe you see being a football independent be even more attractive going forward. I think it's going to be some something to kind of keep in the back of our mind. If BYU has some success and, and they're a regular playoff participant as, a, as an independent if Notre Dame is, is in the same boat maybe that kind of drives uh, you know a, a conf- some conference breakups we've, we've already heard the rumors out there uh, seemingly every other year of, of Texas oh maybe they'll just go independent on their own if BYU is consistently making the tournament and, and it proves a, a decent path to the playoff maybe that's something that Texas a USC like we've mentioned on this program before maybe they do start to say oh, maybe we just go independent we, we can generate more revenue we can keep more of it for ourselves and and we're still going to have the same access to the postseason that we normally do now with that comes some changes in terms of the bowl system we don't know how that's exactly going to shake out as part of this expansion so i think that's something we it's still kind of up in the air but i i don't think it's a huge thing for the independents i don't think it's a huge thing structurally at the same time maybe the changes occur down the road depending on how this tv contract ultimately gets put together 
It's, it's a good point. If you're currently an independent, my advice would be call me when you are regularly beating Temple. Like that could be like the Mendoza line right now for, for, for where you are as a college football program. If you think, all right, if we play Temple four times, we can win three. We are a top 60 program. Then maybe that conversation changes. But BYU, maybe everybody else, you're not, you're not in that conversation right now. So don't worry about it. Um, the last question I, we had in here, kind of big picture realignment-ish, came from a friend of the show, Chris Vanini, who wondered, what should we make about the current state of Big 12 togetherness? And he, he kind of pointed to, to two recent uh, news events. You had the president over at Texas Tech, indicate, and I'm paraphrasing here, correct me, Brian, if I'm paraphrasing this incorrectly, that the Big 12 presidents reached out to ESPN about you know redoing their deal and, and re-upping with ESPN now instead of when their deal formally ends in a couple of years. And ESPN, in so many words, said like, uh, thanks, but no thanks. We're, we're content to to you know go into that negotiating period when the contract actually says it. We're, we're not ready to recommit to you right this second, which I think raised a couple of eyebrows in college football and Big 12 message board universes. The other talking point was Oklahoma's athletic director being very pointed and very public in his criticism of current Big 12 TV partners over their uh, regular scheduling of Oklahoma at 11 a.m., you know, specifically with this upcoming season's game against Nebraska. Now, when I first heard about this, I thought, like, this is ridiculous. Nebraska sucks. And everyone knows that Oklahoma is going to go into that game as like a 28 and a half point favorite. That's not a primetime game. I understand if you're an Oklahoma or Nebraska fan or somebody who was a a big college football fan in like the 70s, maybe you'd feel differently for history's sake. But Oklahoma fans, it's like from what I've gathered, it's not so much that particular game as we are often put in an 11 a.m. And it is hot in Norman at 11 a.m. We cannot properly we cannot get properly uh, you know, lubric- socially lubricated ahead of this game. And it's a, it's a travel burden for a lot of our fans. We would like to play in the late afternoon or primetime more, but Fox wants us there. So should we look at those two things and use them to form some kind of narrative that maybe this is a less cohesive group than we thought? Do we think it means nothing? Are they unrelated data points? What say you? I, I think they're they're just uh, message board you know issues to, kind of being brought up to the, the forefront right now because it, it's it's the summer and they need something to talk about. I I don't think you know the the early renegotiation of of the TV deal is that big of a thing. I, obviously, ESPN is staying busy. They they've got a lot of deals to negotiate. They're going through some structural changes in terms of the personnel and the turnover on that side of the business. So I think they're really kind of wanting to hit pause a little bit. Obviously, they, they've got a big decision coming up with the college football playoff. We don't know if that's going to be taken to open market, whether ESPN is going to use that exclusive window that they have to negotiate um, you know, favorable terms in terms of the, the expansion to 12 teams or how much that's going to cost. Maybe that takes away to where they have to walk away from the Big 12. So I think that's why they kind of said no, you know, thanks, but no thanks. We're, we're going to wait till, till our window comes up because it, it, it makes a lot of sense with the Big 10 coming up ahead before the Big 12. Um, you know, they, they need to know how much they're going to commit to the Michigans and the Ohio States of the world because, let's face it, that's just going to be a bigger part of their business if your ESPN is is getting those massive state universities in the, in the Big 10 compared to some of the schools in the Big 12. That's why the rights for the Big 10 are so much more than the Big 12 right now and are going to continue to be so much more. So, I, I, I don't read too much into what the, the you know, the Texas Tech president said and, and the issues with ESPN there. 
With regard to kickoff times, though, I mean, I think this is just a, a move for, for Joe Castiglione, the Oklahoma AD, to really play into his fan base and say, I, I've got you guys. Don't worry about this, because ultimately his hands are tied. Unless he wants to give back millions of dollars uh, to in, in terms of those media rights fees, Oklahoma is still going to continue to play at 11 a.m. local. That's just a, you know, a fact of where they're located time zone wise and the fact that they have a deal with Fox who wants to make a big deal about those early TV windows. Um, you know, the, the, the Pac-12 has the opposite problem. Their ADs complain all the time about kicking off too late. Um, this is just, you know, it, it's tough because you only have a certain number of windows. Everybody's on TV nowadays. And TV networks, look, they're, they're smart about this. There's a reason why they're putting Oklahoma in those early windows. They know they can get the eyeballs. Listen, it's just going to be a fact of life for every FBS program out there. You're going to have to deal with subpar kickoff times for your fans in order to get the millions of dollars that television generates. It's it's that simple. And I know you like to complain and you wish every game kicked off at noon or you know 3.30, and that's great, but that's not the way of the world right now. And so you're going to have to start to to deal with things and and adjust and and let's face it these are 10 12 year deals you've been doing this for eight nine years already you're gonna have to do them for three or four more years you're likely gonna have to do them for the next two decades just get used to it because as much as you whine and complain it's not going to change the television executives minds yeah i haven't heard of any big time schools publicly saying we are taking less money than we could potentially get in order to preserve the fan experience or preserve X, Y, or Z. Um, I am definitely with you. In that. I outside, read- outside of UConn football, that is the only one. UConn football is the only one that has said that, and they've taken less money because they're going independent. And, and, and a lot of that will come down to basically getting some of those kickoff slots yeah. that they, they desire, but they're getting a lot less money and it, a favorable experience on the basketball side, which really drove, drove that yeah, equation and, as well. And honestly, over, over a six-year time period, they may very well end up making more money given the fact that their fan donations have gone up and that the Big East gets to go to the television bargaining table before the American Athletic does. And the American Athletic television deal is not going to look very good um, if, if it does, it doesn't really look that great now. It's definitely not going to look very good at the at near the end of this decade. So, but that that might be an example. All twelve diehard UConn football fans uh, got better windows in exchange for, uh, for protecting the the programs that people actually care about. I, I I definitely wouldn't read too much into what what Texas Tech's president said for exactly what, exactly the reasons that you laid out. World's on fire right now at ESPN. And quite frankly, nobody wants to write a gigantic check earlier than they have to until they know exactly when the Big 12, the college football playoff is going to come to market, whether that's something that ESPN takes care of in their exclusive bar, uh, uh, negotiating window, whether that gets opened up, whether this is something that, that starts in 2024 or 25, 26. You need to know that before you write the Pac-12 or the Big 12 a gigantic check. Because you're, there's, you have a fine with cash flow, you have a finite amount of money, and you just already signed a couple of other really big deals. The the Big Twelve thing, like it is unusual for an athletic director or university leader to be that pointed and that public in television broadcast partner criticism. Um, that isn't to say that it isn't. It, that it may not be a that it isn't a work or that it's for fan benefit, but like the last time I remember this was with UConn, and then UConn left like six weeks later, and they said like this TV deal sucks for our interest. And I'm not saying that's what Oklahoma is going to do. There's a lot of changes. It would require our university to give back some of the money that they, they could potentially get otherwise. I really do think that frustration is real, uh, and that that is probably something that can't be meaningfully addressed for a couple of years. 
Um, but whatever the new television deal is, given that this is a league where we already have one major partner throwing their weight around a little bit, getting a better deal than everybody else, I could definitely see Oklahoma saying, like, when we resign this, we want more kickoff flexibility. And I understand that big nude Saturday is better for, for television money, um, but also we also like to sell tickets. And in, especially in September, when it's a gajillion degrees, we would much rather play at least some of these games when the sun goes down um, and help us figure that out. And maybe we'll, we'll, we'll schedule, we'll help schedule some, some higher profile opponents to do that. That's something that people can negotiate. That's what all these back end conversations are. You just generally don't do it on Twitter. So when people do, we talk about it. Well, I, I think a lot of the issues with the Oklahoma case in, in particular just was related to the game, the, the opponent. This is a, a historic rivalry, uh, something we're excited to see back in college football, Oklahoma versus Nebraska. But the fact that it's it's that early in the day, I, I think it does limit their opportunities to to drive some of the additional revenue opportunities that, that you would you would like to have around a game like that. To, to me, that is part of the frustration kind of built into is, is that it's one thing to have early kickoff times. I mean, they, they, they have it all the time down there in Dallas. Uh, for the, for the Texas game, it's the fact that it's the Nebraska game, and, and it's one of the rare instances where you know you could truly drive a, a bit of a premium compared to some of the other Oklahoma home games uh, that, that are out there on the schedule that uh, I think really had this frustration kind of spill out into the streets, uh, whether you're the AD or whether you're the fans themselves for the Sooners. Um, just putting this out there, the last time these two teams played in Norman, Oklahoma dropped 62 on Nebraska. Uh, I'm not saying that they're going to drop 62 this year. I am saying that they could. Um, they, we could see another 62-28 kind of game here. I, 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 I expect this to not be especially close. Um, I think that about does it here. We're, I mean, obviously, we have a, a very busy next couple of weeks. Brian and I are, are, are also going to be in and out of uh, our regular publishing schedules and in and out of, of being at our desks as we're going to be on the road. Um, this podcast should continue to publish on the regular scheduled time. Um, you're just going to have a guest that is more articulate and smarter and probably better looking than I am um, on, on the show here while I am out away. Um, but extra points should continue to publish. We're going to, we have some stuff coming this week and then some, some posts here from a couple friends of the newsletter stepping in here while I am out. Um, Brian, where can people continue to find you? Uh, always on Twitter at Brian D Fisher, B R Y A N D F I S C H R. Excited to, uh, to, uh, get out there and, uh, quite a busy time. You know, there's, there's so much going on right now in not only in the sports world, but college athletics over the next couple of weeks, uh, great place to find me and all of my work. Um, you can continue to find me at Matt Brown EP. Send me a note. I'm at Matt at extrapointsmb.com. Um, and uh, I look forward to catching up with you. I, I look forward to catching up with you in two weeks. Um, and uh, I hope that you all continue to enjoy the show here while I am gone. Thanks for listening. Catch up with you soon.